you don't assume everything is just going to work out the faster you progress technology, but you tend to focus on tangible problems rather than long-term threats. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 70 of the Marketing AI Show. I am your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Kaput, and we have a lot to talk about today, don't we, Mike? Yes, we do. <laughs> Some of it very, very recent. Yeah, yeah, very recent. Um, okay, so it is uh, it is 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time, Monday, October 30th. We are recording a little bit later than normal because the White House dropped the fact sheet on the executive order on AI this morning. So we are going to get into that for sure. Uh, but first, uh, thank you to our uh, episode sponsor, BrandOps. Many marketers use ChatGPT to create marketing content, but that's just the beginning. We sat down with the BrandOps team. We were impressed with their complete views of brand marketing performance across channels. Now you can bring BrandOps data into ChatGPT to answer your toughest marketing questions. Use brand ops data to drive unique AI content based on what works in your industry. Visit brandops.io slash marketing AI show to learn more and see brand ops in action. And this week's episode is also brought to us by the Marketing AI Institute AI for Agency Summit, which is this Thursday, November 2nd, from noon to five Eastern. So if you are a marketing agency or if you hire marketing agencies, uh, I would recommend attending. It's going to be an amazing virtual event. It will all happen um, via Whova is our event platform. Um, there's already, I don't know, I think we're over 220 or so registered. Uh, it's a couple hundred agencies already registered. Um, so it's going to cover everything from... I don't know, what does the future of an agency look like with all of the things happening in AI? I mean, that was the big thing for me when I was building my keynote was what is the future state of agencies? Now, what is the demand going to look like for services? What's the talent going to look like? And so we really built the agenda to try and address all of that. We have, uh, you know, building advisory services around AI. We have intellectual property. We have tools and partner programs. Um, really everything you need to get your agency on the right path heading into 2024, trying to figure out the impact AI is going to have on your business. So check out AI4Agencies.com. Again, that is uh, Thursday, November 2nd, starting at noon Eastern time. So there is still time to join us again, AI4Agencies.com and use the code AIPOD50 for $50 off your ticket. All right, Mike, let's, uh. Let's kick it off. I know we're starting off at the White House. We got a bunch of stuff going on, so it's all yours. All right. Sounds good, Paul. So first up, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden has made some very big waves in AI policy by signing a sweeping executive order to guide the development and oversight of artificial intelligence in the U.S. Now, Paul, like you mentioned, we're actually recording this on the morning of Monday, October 30th. And the order came out just a few hours before we started recording today. So this order includes things like new consumer protections around AI. It requires companies to meet certain safety standards, and it tasks federal agencies with regulating AI risk. Now, there are a ton of different elements to this order, and we're going to unpack some of them. Here are a handful of them across some of these different topic areas that jumped out to me as particularly significant. Um, first up, the order actually includes requirements that companies developing AI systems share their safety test results with the U.S. government in certain cases. The Department of Commerce is going to be developing guidance for content authentication and watermarking to clearly label AI-generated content. Uh, we are going to start protecting Americans' privacy by prioritizing federal support for accelerating the development and use of privacy-preserving techniques. And that can include ones that use AI and let AI systems be trained while preserving the privacy of the training data. 
There's a stipulation about ensuring fairness in the use of AI throughout the criminal justice system. We are also getting work on shaping AI's potential to transform education by creating resources to support educators who are deploying AI-enabled educational tools. There is going to be the development of principles and best practices to mitigate the harms and maximize the benefits of AI for workers by addressing things like job displacement, uh, data collection, and labor standards related to AI. And, and last but not least, and again, this is just a sample of what's in there, the government is accelerating the rapid hiring of AI professionals as part of a government-wide AI talent surge that's led by the Office of Personnel Management and a couple of other federal organizations. Now, Paul, this statement released by the White House says, quote, with this executive order, the president directs the most sweeping actions ever taken to protect Americans from the potential risks of AI systems. How big a deal is this, actually? It is a, a really big deal. Um, so I think it's important to first know that executive order isn't law, like the president can't make law without Congress, but it it has significant meaning and uh, they can enforce it in a lot of different ways, um, directly and indirectly, I guess. So I, I think that first we have to accept this is it. Like this is what we're going to get in the United States for the time being. I, I don't know that they would do any follow on executive orders, but we have to be realistic that the current state of the U.S. Congress is probably not coming to any kind of bipartisan agreements on any new laws around AI. We obviously had enough trouble just getting a speaker um, in, in our Congress. So I just don't see anything major happening before the next election. And, and so we're probably looking into 2025 before we're probably going to get any real laws around this. So I, I think it's it's significant in that it has far-reaching implications, but it's also significant in that this is what we're going to probably have in the United States related to laws and regulations. So a recurring topic on this podcast is like, what is the U.S. doing about this? This is this is your answer. This is what the U.S. is is doing and is going to be doing probably for the next 16 plus months is my, my best guess at the moment. So for me, you know, we kind of knew this was coming. I, I saw it. I think I put it on LinkedIn on maybe Saturday night. There was like a political article that sort of tipped off that this was likely coming on Monday morning. So you and I were kind of ready for it. And we're hoping it was going to drop before this podcast started. Um, and it did. But I would also say as of 1030 a.m. Eastern time, Monday morning, all we have is the fact sheet right now. So the White House released a fact sheet and they launched AI.gov or maybe AI.gov was a thing. And it was the first time I went on it this morning. Um, we do not have the full executive order yet. So the commentary we can provide is based on the fact sheet and what we've been able to kind of ascertain since then. So this morning, I, I kind of started by going back and looking in October 2022, the U.S. government released the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. And in that blueprint, they outlined five principles around the design, use, and deployment of automated systems uh, to protect American public in the age of artificial intelligence. And so I think that blueprint sort of started started to set the stage for the kind of things we should expect to see in this executive order. And at that time, they dealt with safe and effective systems, discrimination and protections for consumers, data privacy, uh, notice and explanation when automated systems were being used. Again, it's largely about protection of consumer rights. And then human alternatives, considerations and fallback, meaning you should be able to opt out where appropriate and have access to a person rather than AI if you want it, things like that. So we, we kind of had some indications. Um, what I was looking for, what kind of I kind of made my list before I read the fact sheet about what I'm what I want to see in it or what I expected. The first was jobs in the economy. The second was uh, misinformation and disinformation. The third was elections and democracy. The fourth was consumer safety. The fifth was impact on open source AI and, and the concept of regulatory capture that the big tech is basically driving these things. Um, so that's like some context around kind of how I viewed this. The other thing I think is really, really important because we're going to get into a little bit here of our perception of this executive order, or at least the, the early iteration of it we're seeing. Um, but I think as you try and form your own perspective on this, you, you have to understand 
who you're listening to. And this, this goes for anything. This goes for politics. It goes for media. You have to understand the context of why people say what they say. So the way I look at this, and I started kind of outlining this morning of like the different groups who would talk about this. The, the first one you have to be very conscious of are the doomers. These are the people that are winning most of the mainstream media headlines right now about AI and the existential risk of humanity. They would be considered kind of the loud minority. So if you look at the AI research community, there are very few of them who actually worry intently about existential risks to humanity from AI. But the ones who do, like Jeff Hinton, are the ones who are on 60 Minutes touting this stuff and, and, and worrying about it. So they believe generally. So when you, again, you're, you have to assess the lens someone is looking at this executive order through. So the doomers believe we should slow down. They struggle to find practical explanations of how they arrive at these doomsday scenarios, but they generally lean on this idea that AI is going to become super intelligent or it's going to emerge somehow and that the AI is going to have no use for us humans or bad actors are going to exploit this technology in some incredibly nefarious way that leads to a catastrophic outcome. But they, they struggle often to make these, like, this, these arguments tangible. The thing that's tricky about the doomers is their motivations seem very honest. Um, like there, there doesn't seem to be ulterior motives to someone like a Jeff Hinton. Like, why do you leave Google and, and go out on a media tour, which you've never done and, and talk about these things? It, it, it appears as though he truly believes this. So that's kind of the doomer mentality, but most AI researchers believe the doomers are misguided. So again, it is the loud minority. It is not the, the common viewpoint. So you may hear doomers relation. The other one is that we talked about last week is the optimist or the accelerationist. These are the people that believe that rapidly advancing technology leads to growth and abundance, period. That there are downsides, there are negatives, but at the end of the day, the faster you move, the, the more you create technology, the better off humanity is. So to go back to Mark Andreessen's techno-optimist manifesto mm. and pull two quick excerpts, Technology is the glory of human ambition and achievement, the spearhead of progress and the realization of our potential. We believe growth is progress, leading to vitality, expansion of life, increasing knowledge, higher well-being. So the optimist accelerationist will have a different perspective on the executive order. The third, I just generically called big tech. I didn't have, a, I don't know what else to call these people. They are the ones pushing for the regulation. This is mm. Google, Microsoft, OpenAI, Anthropic, Inflection, all the leaders in the foundation model business right now, the ones building the most powerful models, they're the ones that are loudest about the need for regulation. Now, these are tricky ones to assess because on the surface, it seems altruistic. Like it seems like they truly believe in the importance of regulation, but in reality, they're, they have significant financial motivations to maintain the lead that they've established. So they have the most to gain and they also have the most to lose. So it's hard to assess the true meaning of why big tech is pushing for this. And then the fourth group, which is where I would put myself, I think, Mike, this is probably where you would follow. I don't want to speak for you, but you can, you, you can offer your thoughts, is the rationalists. Mm. And, and so this is the people who are focused on near-term challenges that are presented by the current models and the ones we can kind of project out you know, for the next year. We're worried about autonomous weapons, systematic bias in products and services, disinformation and misinformation, synthetic media, disruption to jobs, educational systems and the economy. The rationalists can be pro-AI, like you can be for progress and technology and you can believe some of the things that the optimists believe but you try and balance that with human interests and ethical considerations. Mm -hmm. So we don't, in the rationalist world, you don't assume everything is just going to work out the faster you progress technology, but you tend to focus on tangible problems rather than long-term threats. So again, as we've said on the show, like I don't not worry about existential risk to humanity. I don't, I'm not sitting here saying there's a zero chance that something catastrophic happens, mm -hmm. but I don't find it productive to spend my time thinking about that very much. So I'll stop there for a minute, Mike, and just see, like, to make sure 
see if there's any thoughts you have maybe on the, the four personas, because you and I haven't even talked about this. This was literally like this morning. I'm trying to like wrap my head around how to assess this and how mm -hmm. to share this with people. Um, so did you have any thoughts on kind of that persona approach? Yeah, a couple of things. One, I love the approach. I actually think it's probably a pretty smart way to approach any subject. Yeah, life of AI. <laughs> yeah, this is like a life pro tip for sure. It's like understanding the landscape of interested parties and the broad groupings of them. And I would also agree with those groupings. And I think in some cases, probably what's important to reiterate to people is, yes, everyone in these groups has different agendas, but you would probably be surprised how many people in big tech companies are both incentivized with that financial motivation, which just is reality, but also how many of them seem to truly believe that the techno optimist outcomes are the ones that they should be working on and working on in that way. So this whole, you know, the Silicon Valley phrase, move fast and break things, right? I think was maybe uh, coined by one of the one of the big tech companies. Maybe it was Facebook. I don't recall. But basically it's only made it's popular this, by Facebook. Yes. <laughs> and it's this mentality that if you that breaking things is not only okay, but sometimes it's advisable because it means you're moving fast enough to race to market to develop certain technologies. And that is exactly what we're seeing here. And I think the rationalist perspective is probably like, hey, let's move fast and break fewer things. Right. Yeah. Or at Let's least be safely. concerned about how they can break. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah no. I would agree generally with your assessment. Uh, I think it's spot on and it's really, really important for people to understand these different groups. And I think some of it sounds like from some of the reporting so far on the uh, on the executive order, uh, a lot of this came out of the government looking at their perceived failure with social media as a technology. Yeah. I think some people within the Biden administration, it sounds like, felt like they had dropped, the, the government had dropped the ball on stopping these people from breaking things by moving so fast. And so you're seeing this, but just on steroids. So they really, I think they recognize that, which is positive. Yep. Yeah. And I think, so, so like going back to then how I, the lens with which I look at the executive order, I look at personally, as a rationalist, like that, that is just kind of how I generally approach everything in life is trying to be reasonable and logical about the arguments and trying to think of both sides. I think you have to accept that the executive order is most likely largely influenced by big tech of the four groups that that is largely who has been sitting in these meetings. It appears they've tried to balance it with some of the doomers. There's, you know, certainly those voices have had an effect um, in different ways. I think they've pulled in some of the optimists, accelerationalists, some of the, the open source advocates, the people who are really championing the need for open source. But most likely, big tech would be the, the most influential uh, group in, 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 in this, uh, this kind of persona analysis. So with all that being said, here is my overall take so far. Um, again, keeping in mind, all we have is a fact sheet and an outline of key things. The fact sheet does not offer very many specifics, if any specifics, on how they're going to do it, how fast they will do it, or how much money the government will invest to do it. So while there are lots of really promising ideas here, and they do address a wide range of issues. Um, there isn't much in this fact sheet that tells you when any of this will happen or how they're actually going to adhere to it. Like the idea of uh, AI generated content being, you know, tracked and reported. How? Like that, mm -hmm. that may be a five year thing before they have any way to do that with text. Like we know images that might be possible. And so when I, when I go back to my list of the things I was looking for, jobs in the economy, basically they said, we're going to study it that there will be a study conducted on the impact of labor and that we will make it easier for people to come to the United States and work on this technology. And in fact, AI.gov, the navigation of that site has build your AI skills, which links to a bunch of foundations and stuff. And then it has bring your AI skills to the US. Those are literally two of the four links in the navigation. So that was my take on jobs in the coming. Misinformation and disinformation, they certainly address it. Um, and they largely talk about the need to identify the AI-generated content, which again, there's no near-term solution for. So don't know when they're going to do that or how they're going to do it. 
They don't directly talk about elections and democracy. It's sort of like probably passively related to a lot of things that are mentioned. Consumer safety, it's all over it. That's basically the premise. It's the thing they can control because they yeah. can't create laws, but they can force government agencies to enact or to uh, govern existing laws more aggressively. And they can push for agencies to adhere to kind of new policies and principles. So they can affect consumer safety probably the most. And then the impact on open source and, and this idea of regulatory capture, it's honestly not clear to me yet. Like I, I need to see more commentary from those people uh, to see how they're perceiving it because it wasn't, it wasn't very uh, clear to, to me how they would. So the two people I have seen, as I mentioned, I have not seen much commentary at all yet this mm. morning. And this is like three and a half hours old. One was Jack Clark, who is the co-founder of Anthropic. I would put them in the big tech category. He was also previously policy director at OpenAI and an AI reporter at Bloomberg prior to that. He had about a six tweet thread, but one said proof is obviously going to be in the implementation, but the executive order gets a bunch of different parts of government to create capacity for third party measurement, oversight and analysis of AI systems, which seems broadly helpful. And then we had Aaron Levy, the CEO of Box. He said Biden's AI executive order is the gold standard for how governments should be regulating AI right now. Thoughtful but scoped oversight focused on practical, practical risks, emphasis on privacy and security, focus on R&D across the ecosystem, and encouraging use in, of AI in the government. That would seem like a rationalist take to me. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I, I lean in the direction of I think this is an, an accurate assessment of it, but until I read the actual 111-page or so executive order, I, mm -hmm. I can't say this to be true because there just isn't enough information to go on yet. So it sounds like as some of the initial report, reporting from uh, the Associated Press around this, uh, which definitely had some quotes directly from people within the administration, it sounds like they've been thinking about this issue for a while, but also planning potentially this to be a springboard for broader, um, broader voluntary commitments from tech companies, but also possible legislation. But what you're saying here is, it sounds like this is what we're getting for the next year and a half. So people should be considering not holding their breath probably for some sweeping legislation like the AI Act in the EU. Is that correct? I mean, I hope I'm like pleasantly surprised by Congress's ability to figure out how to do anything at all right now, more or less be partisan, by, be bipartisan on an issue. Um, so I, I hope that that happens, but no, I wouldn't hold my breath thinking that Congress is going to somehow come together and, and put laws in place, but I would love to be wrong. And so that's not totally surprising. The regulatory framework, or at least the way it looks like it's shaping up, you know, is going to be very, very different in the U.S. compared to the EU, which has been broadly true with a lot of data privacy and technology-focused legislation over the last several years. Yeah, and it's going to be one of those things where the company, I mean, keep in mind that the companies building these foundational models are almost exclusively based in the U.S., at least the ones that are going to be broadly used right now. Right. And so they're going to be affected by EU use AI Act regardless, and it may impact the way that they have to build these things anyway. So it's not like the EU isn't going to have any effect on the US. It could, but I just feel like it's going to take 2024 to see a lot of these ideas through that are even outlined in this fact sheet mm -hmm. and to figure out how to govern these things and to get the studies underway that they talk about, because so much of the, the fact sheet of the executive order is about research and analysis and establishing frameworks and putting bodies in place to do this and and hiring ai researchers within you know government agencies and it, it's this you don't flip a switch and and see all these ideas come to life at like january 2024 this is this is going to be a prolonged implementation of this vision i guess yeah and as we wrap this up here just a quick weird shout out from this article they go into all the extensive steps the biden administration had kind of gone through to understand artificial intelligence you know talking with experts doing a lot of research and fact finding so it's very clear they're they were deeply involved in the subject but they had some like bizarre shout out to the new mission impossible movie and they they spent like a paragraph talking <laughs> about how as all this stuff was happening and being formulated that biden watched the new Mission Impossible movie, which apparently is about AI taking over. It's like the Jesus. villain and came away like 
with a better appreciation of what could go wrong. And I was like, I don't know if that's going to be your primary source for this, but hey, shout out to Mission Impossible for raising awareness of AI risks. For some reason, I'm picturing like a weekend of movie night at the White House where they were watching like <laughs> her and Ex Mahina yeah, and Mission yeah. Impossible. And like, now I'm a little worried. <laughs> it wasn't, I want to make it very clear. That's not the only thing that made them aware of this, but it was kind of a funny, funny. and bizarre shout out. Yeah, that's weird. All right. Our next main topic today, according to a report from Bloomberg, Apple is now spending about a billion dollars per year to develop its own generative AI capabilities. So this investment comes as Apple is playing catch up to all the other big tech companies like Google, Microsoft, and Amazon, all of whom have released a bunch of AI products and features. Now, Apple products, make no mistake, they use AI a lot. Like your iPhone relies on many types of artificial intelligence to do what it does. But they don't have a dedicated generative AI product like ChatGPT just yet. Now, there have been past reports that they have built their own large language model, which is known as Ajax. And there are rumors that Apple has an internal chatbot known as Apple GPT. According to Bloomberg, Apple might start looking to incorporate AI into Siri, Messages, and Apple Music to start. So, Paul, I, I know you follow Apple very, very closely. Can you give us a sense of how Apple has approached AI up until this moment? Yeah, they don't talk about it. So, so Apple is extremely advanced with AI. They build their own chips. They have, you know, probably hundreds of AI features and iPhones and watch and the iPad and Macs and like, it's an AI company. They just, for whatever reason, historically never talk about. Um, so th that's first and foremost, they make massive investments. Contextually though, I think it's important because it's like always like, you have to understand the broader implications. A billion dollars sounds like a lot of money to people. That is like less, it's probably like 3% of their R&D budget, if I'm doing my math in my head correctly. I think in 2002, they spent over $26 billion on R&D. So my initial feeling is a billion is not enough. Now, because of how they classify things, the other $26 billion likely has all kinds of AI tied to it. Like when they're building products, they don't build them without doing machine learning and deep learning. Um, but they just don't classify it that way. So I don't know. Contextually, my first reaction was a billion's nothing to Apple. Um, the other thing I think about, though, is like, I, I wonder if they, they aren't forced to change their messaging soon. So I'm actually curious because they have an event tonight. So again, this is October 30th. We're recording this. There's an event tonight called Scary Fast is the theme of the event. Um, and I think it's going to be related to chips, like their mm -hmm. silicon chips. Um, and the processing speed and the efficiency, energy efficiency and things like that. But there's rumors there might be some other stuff that's talked about. It's an unusual time. They don't usually do like 5 p.m. Uh, I think it's a yeah 8 p.m. Eastern time, 5 p.m. Pacific time event, which is highly unusual for Apple. So again, maybe they'll do something. But historically, they just embed it within and they don't even tell you it's there. So yeah. again, they're chips. One of the great examples to me is uh, photos. Like, you know, you can go into Apple Photos on your phone and search for any image or any time or place or person, and it just shows up, like magically shows up. Well, they, they've been using AI for years to enable that, and they don't even talk about it. Versus Google, which is running ads right now, showing how you can take a series of photos and it'll magically pick the best face, the best smile of each person in the photo and replace them all into a single photo. So it's like stitching the hmm. photo together using AI and they tell you it's using AI. So Apple is a very stealthy AI powerhouse. They don't publish their research. They don't, their people rarely have public personas. So they don't have people who are out, you know, active on Twitter. Apple itself is barely active on Twitter. Like it's, they just quietly go about their business, building smarter products and they just work and they seem like magic. I, I don't know that they can do that moving forward. Like I, I keep waiting for them to all of a sudden start talking about AI. And I, I don't know, I'll interest to see if it happens this fall. So talking about generative AI capabilities and products specifically, can Apple catch up at this point? The space moves so fast and the other players have made such huge moves. I'm wondering how you see how far behind they are, if at all. 
Well, they definitely, I mean, the article you're referring to said they got caught flat-footed, like they, mm-hmm. which is, again, I, I'm just still shocked by how, how, how unprepared Google and Apple and other, these other companies were for the chat GPT moment. Like it, it's, it's really shocking to me. Um, I still can't quite process it <laughs> knowing all the, re- the AI researchers they had and access to this stuff that they had. Um, but you know, I think that was, you know, my initial take on where they were. And then I think where they go is like, I, I don't know that anything but Surrey matters. Like they're going to infuse it into, I assume into like keynote, like we use keynote, you and I are both fans of Apple keynote. We use that product. Um, you could see it put, put into a bunch of different products, but if they don't make Surrey smarter, it, it's just like one of the great misses in business history. Because mm-hmm. like even we'll talk about in a couple minutes, my experience using the voice conversation in ChatGPT over the weekend, and it's gotten pretty good, like to have a conversation. You can do the same thing with inflection pie. You know, you can just talk to the AI. Well, that's what Surrey was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So again, I, all the stuff that Apple does, unless they make Surrey what it was supposed to be, it's just a massive miss on their part. And so I got to guess that they're working on that. So Siri is really the game-changing opportunity that they have when it comes to actually doing something very meaningful publicly with Gen AI. Well, yeah, because it's infused into everything. So imagine being able to like talk to your computer and say, you know, open up this application, do, you know, take this Mm -hmm. thing, do this action, like talk to your computer, the same thing with your phone, like not just again, getting weather and scores and your calendar for the day, but having a conversation with it, you know, finding out, having it do tasks for you that you don't have to set the rules for. Like right now you can do things in your iPhone, but you have to set all the rules yourself. Like just have that conversation um, into your iPad, your watch, the Vision Pro, like every product they have Mm -hmm. made so much better from a consumer experience standpoint if you could just talk to them. And they know that, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's no way that isn't the thing that they're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. So in our third big topic today, we're going to spend a minute talking about a guy named Ilya Sutskever, and he is one of the lesser known co-founders of OpenAI, and he is their current chief scientist. Um, He, despite being lesser known, has made huge contributions to the advancements of AI, both at OpenAI and before he was there working originally with Jeff Hinton to develop some of the core technologies that are making generative AI today possible. And he actually just gave basically a rare interview to MIT Technology Review. It's a wide-ranging discussion and well worth reading all of it. He makes some really bold statements about the sheer power of AI today and how powerful it will be in the near future. And he speaks of artificial general intelligence or AGI as a near-term inevitability. And because of that belief, he's working on something they're calling super alignment at OpenAI, which is making sure that humans remain in control when AI achieves super intelligence, which they would define as it's able to outsmart us at every cognitive task. Now, when he was asked about the risks and rewards that he sees coming from AI down the line, potentially very soon, he says, quote, it's going to be monumental, earth shattering. There will be a before and an after. Now, Paul, walk us through why this interview is so important and maybe why it matters, even though we're talking about some very big picture topics here. I think first just his significance to the moment we're in in AI, most people don't know. Like again, outside of tech circles, the average person's probably never heard of Ilya, unless you've read Genius Makers by Cade Matz, which is where I really got introduced to him as a significant player um, in, in this current age. So I, I, I think a number of things, um, we always talk about the context of understanding the mentality of the people behind this technology, the people who are building this and what they believe Um, You don't have to agree with it, but this is what they believe to be true. So the AGI thing is a a big thing. Like it's becoming more uh, common to talk about this year. Like I remember last fall sitting there thinking I need to do a, like a LinkedIn post about AGI, but I don't know that like people in my network are really ready for that conversation, but it's important to me that they start to realize this is a significant thing. 
Um, I don't remember if I ended up doing the post or not, but like, I remember that moment of thinking like people need to be aware, but I don't know that they're ready yet. Mm. And, and so to hear them talking about it as this inevitability, like he truly moves back and forth between present tense and future tense. When he talks about a AGI, it's almost like it's already there, which yeah. if you believe some of the rumors, it may be like open AI may think that they actually have AGI and they just haven't like told the rest of the world about it yet. Um, but they talk about it as inevitable, which was not a common belief, even, you know, a year ago. Um, the before and after the monumental earth shattering thing you mentioned, that's interesting because again, to many people, what we have right now is earth shattering. They're talking about what we have right now is just kind of boring AI that, that isn't AGI. And so to them, there is this before and after world. I think the article is really cool if you appreciate the history of this stuff, because it does go into AlexNet, which they called like the Big Bang moment in 2012 for deep learning, um, the rise of NVIDIA GPUs, the significance of Ilya and how kind of OpenAI was founded and how his recruitment actually led to them being able to get other top AI researchers. One of the stories I thought was really cool is we've heard all these kind of, I, I guess, um, related stories about OpenAI's people not believing in ChatGPT, that like when they released it, they yeah. weren't sure it was going to work. And I thought that was really cool because he said uh, at the time, OpenAI had no idea what it was putting out. Expectations inside the company couldn't have been lower, <laughs> says Sutskova. I will admit to my slight embarrassment, I don't know if I should, but what the hell? It is true. Hmm. When we made ChatGPT, I didn't know if it was any good. When you asked it a factual question, it gave you a wrong answer. I thought it was going to be so unimpressive that people would say, why are you doing this? This is so boring. <laughs> and so just to like get that context of, of kind of how they viewed things is, is so intriguing. And then, you know, obviously he goes into the AGI stuff and he talks um, about how the shift in mentality, even with AI research community, like it was thought of as kind of crazy to talk about AGI before ChatGPT, but they felt like, you know, that changed. Um, and then, you know, just getting into the whole thing at the end about, you know, humans choosing to merge with AI again, nuts. Like the average person would be like, that would never happen. Yeah. And he admits that he's like, it sounds crazy, but there's probably going to be a time when, when super intelligence exists where it's like, ah, I'll just join up with the AI. Cause I got, I got nothing as a, as a lowly human. And it's like that they're thinking about these things is, is just, it's important perspective to dip your mind into a little bit realize what's going on and then go back to your like daily life trying to figure out how to you know write better articles with ai <laughs> so one thing jumped out to me about hit when he was talking about how chat gpt basically changed everything and it wasn't just about getting you know more than 100 million users very very quickly it was also because quote chat gpt has allowed machine learning researchers to dream and by that it sounds a little pie in the sky, but it's actually, I think, really important to understand that this unlocked a lot of very talented AI people to start believing something like artificial general intelligence could be possible and sooner than we think. Can you maybe just unpack a little more some of the views around AGI and why these might be more than just like science fiction? Yeah, so we we actually, um, we've talked about this a little bit. We... Uh, uh, Vedant Mishra was a, a Google researcher who actually did uh, a talk for us at Maycon. And I, I remember asking him this question about like, why are you at Google working on this? And he said that we, I believe in the possibility of AGI basically. And I said, well, why, like it could go wrong. Why would you be working on AGI? And he said, because people like me believe in a world of abundance, that we think that if we achieve AGI, that we can create an amazing future for humanity. And I don't, again, I don't know how universal that belief is, but I've talked with enough people in the AI research community who share that vision that if we can do this, we can create an amazing, abundant future for everyone. And, uh, and it seems to be a driving force behind why people do this yeah so it, it really does seem like whether we get there or not and some people don't even think we can that some people do see the tangible work they're doing at some of these 
big tech companies that you mentioned as one of the major groups here, that they could actually be ushering in some type of machine intelligence that is broadly as good or better than human beings. Yeah, which is terrifying and <laughs> exciting, like depending on how you feel that day. All right, let's dive into some rapid fire topics. And the first one is going to be something a little lighter, but actually very important. So, Paul, you actually posted about an experiment you did this past weekend, having ChatGPT come up with a Halloween costume for you and helping you execute it in a number of ways. And not only is that a fun, I think, example of what's possible, but it also shows, you know, how you can be creative and change how you plan out basically any project when it comes to with AI, uh, when it comes to basically anything you can think of doing. So could you walk us through what you did and what Halloween costume you ended up getting out of it? Yeah. So it was interesting. It was a, it was Saturday morning and, and we were just striking out on Halloween costume ideas. And we had a party at like three o'clock that day, a family party. And so I was sitting there with my daughter, my wife, my, I don't, my son was playing video games, I think. And so I said, you know, it'd be funny. It's like, if I just figured out a way to have my phone with me and then someone could come up and push a button on my shirt and like ask me anything and I would just use chat GPT's voice capability to have a conversation with people, it would be like interesting and educational. And my daughter just kind of like, whatever. And, and I said, no, try it. And so I pulled up chat GPT plus and I did the voice conversation. I said, like, just, let's just talk to it. And she just wanted nothing to do with it. And so I said, like, I, I need some ideas for like, Halloween or something. And it came back and said, Halloween's fun and creative. Are you looking for costume ideas, decoration ideas, or perhaps spooky recipes? Let me know what you're interested in. I'll be happy to help. So I said, costume ideas for an adult male, age 45, something fun, something that my kids might find cringy because they're Gen Z, which of course got the eye roll from my daughter. Um, because I'm not allowed to use the word cringe. Only they are. apparently. <laughs> so one of the ideas that came back with right away was a dad joke detective. And I was like, oh, well, I don't, I don't like the detective thing, but like, I like the dad joke thing. Like, that's pretty cool. I know ChatGPT can tell jokes. So I started prompting it saying, can you create a series of Halloween themed dad jokes? And it, it creates like seven to eight at a time. And I just kept like more, more, like I just kept prompting it, like, give me more because they were pretty funny. And so I'm reading them and I'm laughing. Like my wife's kind of, you know, at least giving me a token giggle. My daughter is just rolling her eyes at me still. So I was like, this is good. Like if I'm getting the eye roll, it means I'm onto something. So once I had the dad jokes kind of locked in, I, I needed like a way to deliver this. Like I needed to know what the costume was going to be. So I said, uh, okay, so what are some outfit ideas related to this? I want to let people come up and request a joke. I'm thinking like a robot or Silicon Valley bro or dressing up as chat GPT in some way. It came back with a few interesting things. And then I was like, oh, I wonder what chat GPT would look like if it was a middle-aged dad. And so I prompted it. I said, well, what would chat GPT look like if it were a middle-aged dad? And it came back with two options. And one, it said, uh, ChatGPT personified as a middle-aged dad. The first image portrays ChatGPT as a friendly middle-aged dad wearing glasses, a polo shirt, khaki pants. I was like, I got all those things. <laughs> so, and he's holding a smartphone displaying a chat bubble. And you can spot a dad joke book peeking out of his backpack. I was like, oh, this is perfect. Like, I can make a logo. I can put it on my iPad. Like, I'll walk around telling dad jokes. Like, this is awesome. So I'm like, okay, now I need a logo. So now, and again, like flip this to a business scenario. We're just brainstorming. You're just trying to like create ideas mm. where I was like nothing. I was like staring at a blank page. So I go through iterations on the logo. It keeps spelling it wrong. It was driving me nuts. Like it, it gets, if anybody's used Dolly 3 and tried to get words into it to do things like this, it'll just leave letters out randomly. It'll like make it cat GPT instead. Like it does weird stuff. So I finally got it to work. I said, okay, let's try one more time from scratch. Here's what I need. Logo for product named Dad Joke GPT, which is the name I'd come up with. Halloween themed, full color, fun for kids. Please spell out the full name in the logo. And this time it nailed it. And we'll put the we'll put the images in the in the show notes on the site. Um, so if you just go to Marketing Institute and check out the, the podcast or the, the blog post, so you can see these, or you can go to my LinkedIn page and check them out. And so I said, great work. You nailed it. And ChatGPT said, thank you. I'm glad to hear it. If you have any more requests or need further assistance, feel free to ask. Enjoy your Halloween themed Dad Joke dad joke gpt logo and have a spooktacular day and so i said like the moral of the story here is just play with these tools like mm -hmm. this gave me an excuse to you know play around as a logo generator i've been wanting to see can it do it and it actually did some awesome logos like that just had the misspelling wrong like if i could have just said no change the spelling to this but use that driving image which i probably could have done i, I guess i probably could have uploaded that i don't know um but the whole whole idea is like 
you can discover ways to use these tools that are so far beyond writing emails and articles and proposals. Mm. If you just play with them and learn what they're capable of doing. And so much of what I just explained is all relatively new capabilities since the GPT-4 vision capability, and then the ability to have a voice conversation emerged. So it was just like a fun, like, you know, tomorrow's Halloween. It's like, it, it, it's like a little light, more lighthearted based on <laughs> super intelligence stuff. So yeah, we thought it'd be like a fun thing to just share with people, but really it's more about this idea of experimentation and like competency in these tools comes from finding use cases, whether it's in your personal life or professional life, you got to just try them and see what they're capable of doing. So for our next rapid fire topic, we're talking again about Descript, which is a popular AI video and audio editing tool that we rely on here at the Institute. And we're going to cover two quick topics related to Descript. Now, first, the company just launched something called AI Actions. These are a series of ongoing AI updates to Descript's capabilities. They say that it's built right into your workflows. Descript's AI tools do the work so you can skip to the flow. Now, right now, these tools, and there are others coming soon, they say, they include things like a chapter generator. So this will give you instant chapter markers and titles. They have something called summarizer that will summarize what is being said in a transcript. They have a social post writer and an ask AI anything feature that can help you brainstorm some ideas. So those are pretty cool and worth checking out if you're a Descript user. And second, we wanted to share just a quick hands-on experiment we've been doing with Descript's overdub feature. So this feature allows you to create a realistic digital voice clone of a speaker. And you can use this to dub over things they said in a recording so they don't have to re-record short bits of content. <clears throat> One of our team members said, quote, how easy it was creeped me out, but also was really cool. So Descript basically makes you record yourself talking or saying a specific paragraph of text that it gives you in order to create this voice clone. Or you can upload someone reading the specific paragraph that it requires. And once you do that, you then just highlight the text that you want to replace in your transcript. You right-click, select overdub, and you literally just type in what you want the voice clone to substitute instead. So Paul, our team's been having fun with this, pretty crazy technology. Obviously we're doing it all with the permission of the people whose voices yes. are being cloned, which is important. What did you make of some of the experiments and some of the new Descript features that we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, we're obviously big fans of Descript. We talk about them a lot. They're not a sponsor of ours, so it is just literally because it's an awesome tool. And we mentioned, I think, a week or two ago that they had a bunch of stuff coming and, and we're already starting to see the flood of this stuff. The overdub is awesome. It is definitely creepy how easy it is to do it. Like, I mean, I think, what did you say? It was like a 30-second script she read or something and, and yeah, it I think just so. cloned it. Um, it seems like we're on a bit of an honor system, which is really kind of creepy, I guess, that you know, anybody can take any audio file and, and kind of upload it and do it. It seems like through basically an honor system. Um, but yeah, I mean, the tech is awesome. When we look at the positive uses of it, which is what most people are going to do with it. Again, most uses of AI will be for good, uh, for creativity, um, and, and to augment what we're capable of and enhance our abilities. And, and in that sense, if we stay on that focus, it's amazing stuff. Next up, Amazon has made some waves in the advertising world this past week with the launch of a new AI tool. So they actually rolled out an image generation capability as part of Amazon ads that's in beta. And this basically just helps you generate more visually compelling ads using AI. So the solution lets brands generate lifestyle images, which showcase the, their products being used kind of in context, which Amazon says can boost ad performance. So... An example given by the company is an advertiser may have, say, standalone images of their product against like a white background, like say a toaster. And when the same toaster is placed in a lifestyle context, like being used on a kitchen counter next to a, a piece of toast in a sponsored brand's ad, the click-through rates apparently can be up to 40% higher than to ads with just boring standard product images. So this tool will actually help you simulate lifestyle factors around a product without having to essentially do a photo shoot. And Amazon has rolled this out because it has directly proven 
that dramatically increases the use or the effectiveness of the ads you're creating. Paul, what did you make of the ability to now do this right within Amazon ads? I think we're going to see a flood of these kinds of features in existing platforms. The thing that's interesting about this that maybe is a prelude to what we'll see more of in 2024 is you could use like a mid-journey or Adobe or something like that to do this same thing. Just take an image of a toaster and like, you know, do an image fill or like create an image around it, create a scene around it. Like you could do this. But the key is when you do it in Amazon, they can connect it to performance data and they can, in theory, optimize those images based on what they know works best. And so it's this idea of generative AI connected to analytics, which is like a total unlock moving into next year that we're not seeing much of right now. Mm -hmm. Like when you're in ChatGPT and you're writing emails, it's not connected to the best performing emails. Like it doesn't know what's worked previously. Um, so I think for existing platforms, whether they're CRMs or e-commerce stores, to enable generative AI that also ties to performance data so that the outputs of the generative AI are more intelligent, that's a really interesting thing looking forward to next year. And I have not seen very many applications of that. Like you certainly see with Facebook ads, I assume with Google ads, you're mm -hmm. seeing it in the ad space, but I could imagine seeing that played out in a lot more in marketing sales and service as well. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially just unlocking this capability that, yeah, you technically could have had before if you had sat down and done new photo shoots or done an extensive amount of editing. This is a really tangible use case that directly leads to better performing ads, which I found great. Well, especially since a lot of the people that are selling them, they're probably small businesses yep. and independents. So, yeah, it's like uh, bringing that capability down to the smaller businesses is a big thing. So in our next topic, a new analysis from our friends over at Insight Partners. Um, it's basically a big wake-up call for every marketing professional. Uh, in a recently published article, Insight Partners breaks down how AI, specifically Google's AI-powered search generative experience, SGE, will have a disruptive impact on traffic from search. Specifically, they say that this conversational nature of the SGE results is going to result in more, quote, zero-click results, where basically users get a full answer or a result without having to click on links. I mean, we've already seen this playing out as we're experimenting with SGE, and they actually also point out that only 57% of SGE results are from the first page of organic results, and that the first SGE link is the same as the first organic link only 12% of the time. So... Their conclusion here is that if users start switching their reading habits and clicking behavior to the SGE box that appears over traditional search results, this could be a huge shift in traffic and eyeballs. And so as a result of this, they make some really solid recommendations to companies who rely on search traffic to power their marketing engine. Notably, they said traffic fuels so many aspects of your go-to-market engine Lead quantity could go down even if quality goes up. Retargeting campaigns may be able to target only a fraction of their previous audience. Lead scoring accuracy may be reduced if more research is done off-site. Brand scorecards and awareness campaign measurement could be less accurate. As a result, Insight says things like your content strategy needs to change and evolve. They actually expect traffic declines up to 25% due to this, and they're really sounding the alarm to start preparing for 2024 because that's when SGE and similar types of AI-powered search results are rolling out in a more widespread fashion. And basically, they conclude, you want to establish what they call a war room for SEO and SEM and figure out where, uh, where you're going when it comes to search and SEO in your business. So, Paul, what jumped out to you here about their advice and their kind of alarm bells that they're ringing about search. We've been looking for some tangible data on this. I mean, I think there's a lot of assumptions being made about the potential decline in organic traffic, the impact on SEO, and, and then downstream the impact on just content marketing and brand publishing overall. And obviously, if you're a media company, the impact on uh, traffic to the site and, and ad clicks and things like that. So there's just a lot of unknowns, and I think they did a really good job of highlighting those and making some assumptions about the future. Again, we don't know for sure, but these are 
you know, at least based on fact and their own research versus just theory. And I, I think it is a, it's a topic we're probably going to come back to a lot next year as things start to play out. But the questions you start to wonder is when there is just a generative AI output in a search engine and it maybe it has some links or citations, like where are those coming from? If mm. they're not, like my personal experience has been they are not the same quality as the top 10 results on a normal search engine result page. Um, I've had instances where it gives me, you know, links and I click through them and they're just junk, like like spam sites. And these are coming from Google and Microsoft. Mm -hmm. So something's off, like the algorithm with how, with, uh, like how they're selecting what to inject into those results is weird. It's not like their normal algorithms, which I assume they'll solve, but like, that's an unknown right now is like, how, where are those coming from? And how do you get in those links? If doing what we did previously to get in the top three to five links on page one doesn't get us in these generative AI responses, then what do you do differently? Um, I think watching very closely your organic traffic and then just overall, like what, what does that mean to our strategy? Like how do we evolve our content strategies if all of this ends up being true? Like if we see a big drop in organic traffic, if we see a change in consumer behavior, I've said on this show before, like clicking on links on Google feels obsolete. Like going to a search result page and having to work for the answer feels weird to me now. Like, it, and when that happens, that's when you know change is coming. That's when consumer behavior is altering when you do an experience that feels archaic. And so I just, I think it's inevitable that we, like search looks different next year. Like it's going, it's going to be a different experience. We just don't know how it plays out. So I think all marketers, all business leaders really need to be paying attention to that, especially if you rely heavily on organic traffic and add revenue from that traffic. So last but not least on our docket today, Google just confirmed that it's investing up to $2 billion in AI company Anthropic, the maker of the Claude chatbot. Google has already invested $500 million into the company and is upping that by $1.5 billion over time. Now, this comes right on the back of Amazon's announcement last month that it would also invest $4 billion, up to $4 billion into Anthropic. Paul, like, what what is Anthropic doing to deserve this windfall? It's been a good couple months. Yeah, they're a major player in the, the language model space. Their their big focus is on safety. And so they claim, you know, Dario Amade, we did a podcast episode where we talked about one of his interviews extensively. And uh, he came from uh, safety and security at OpenAI to found an Anthropic. Um, their belief is they have to build extremely powerful models to figure out how to protect humanity from them. And so they're racing to build powerful models to figure out how to put guardrails around them. Um, it, it's sort of the catch 22 right now is the companies that want to build safety and security into these have to build the models first and then building the models, there's risk. So they're, they're just, they're in a very important company. Uh, we'd say it often. You have, you have Google, you have, um, Microsoft, you have Anthropic, you have Inflection, OpenAI. Like these are the companies that will define the future of humanity in many ways, especially if the government regulations we talked about earlier protect the leaders. They become even more powerful and important to the future of humanity and certainly of business <laughs> at a smaller level. So, yeah, it's a company to pay attention to. All right. Well, believe it or not, there were almost a dozen topics that didn't even make it into this podcast episode. And this is why we have revamped the format of the Marketing AI Institute's newsletter, which goes out weekly. If you go to marketingaiinstitute.com forward slash newsletter, you can join more than 25,000 next-gen marketers who get our newsletter every week. It goes out on Tuesdays. And we've revamped it to include to make sure it is this week in AI. So we are including all of the news and analysis we discuss both on the podcast and the stuff that doesn't make it onto the episode. So you can, in one weekly digest, get a full picture of what's going on in AI every week, which I'm sure many of our listeners know isn't always easy to do on your own. So I'd highly encourage you to check out marketingaiinstitute.com forward slash newsletter to check out uh, that weekly digest. And Paul, as always, thank you for breaking down what's going on this week in AI. We really appreciate it. 
Yeah, it's it's good stuff. And we, we're thankful for everyone listening. And again, encourage you, form your own perspectives on this stuff. We try and give as balanced um, of viewpoints as possible on all, on all these topics. Hopefully we do a good job of that. Um, when there is bias, we try and illuminate what our bias may be on these topics. But our whole point is to try and give you the knowledge and resources so you can form your own opinions and hopefully help ensure that we have the best possible outcome from AI and we, we have a human-centered approach to it in everything we do. So thanks for listening. We will talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening to The Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.